Welcome back to Unsafe Space, everyone. I'm your host, Carter Laren. This is the second half of the Tuesday Tea Time episode. The first half of the episode, I went through some of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's platform. She has, I think it's 15 points in her platform, but I kind of ran out of time. So for those of you who don't know, every Tuesday at 4 p.m., I do Tuesday Tea Time, where I talk about the philosophical ideas behind political and cultural movements and issues. And this Tuesday, I started going through the platform of Ocasio-Cortez and only got about halfway through it before my hour was up. So I, uh, I'm providing this supplemental. Here's the other half, the supplemental version, uh, the supplemental content for today's show. Just as a reminder, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, she is the youngest female of uh, congressional uh, member in history. She's from New York's 14th Congressional District. And she is, as I like to say, she is the basic bitch of millennial leftists. She has a very uh, run-of-the-mill democratic socialist platitude campaign. And her platform in particular had 15 points to it. And I'll read them off now. And then I'll go through the last the last several that I missed earlier today. So the first one is Medicare for All, then Housing as a Human Right, a Peace Economy, a Federal Jobs Guarantee, Gun Control slash Assault Weapons Ban, Criminal Justice Reform, comma, End Private Prisons, Immigration Justice slash Abolish ICE, Solidarity with Puerto Rico, Mobilizing Against Climate Change, Clear Campaign Finance, Higher Education slash Trade School for All, Women's Rights, Support LBG, actually it says LGBTQIA+, Support Seniors, and Curb Wall Street Gambling, colon, Restore Glass-Steagall. So those are all of her platform points. I went through the first, I think it was, what, eight earlier at the official tea time during the official tea time episode and i ended with her point of solidarity with puerto rico if you'd like to watch that just if you're watching on youtube or if you're listening on a podcast it's probably just the previous episode on the podcast and you can obviously find it on youtube by looking for the tea time uh episode i believe it's titled i see red people so that is that is the episode. So let's let's dig in. By the way, tea time at this point has turned into glass of wine time. So it's no longer 4 p.m. It is now I don't know what time it is seven. So it's time to crack open some wine. So let's get moving. So I I went through the solidarity with Puerto Rico point last. Let's talk about her her next point, which is mobilizing against climate change now let's see where is it here i'm looking at directly at her website for all of this so the 
the the point starts out by saying she says in order to address runaway global climate change alexandria strongly supports transitioning the united states to a carbon-free 100 percent renewable energy system and a fully modernized electrical grid by 2035 so uh, ambitious to say the least on that front now climate change it's a hot button issue for for the younger for the younger demographic and i understand that uh i think partly it gives people some meaning there's not a lot of meaning that youth have in their lives today there's uh really you know I, i'm an atheist so so it's I, I don't necessarily advocate for religion but there has been a, a a steady and meaningful decline in both belief in in higher beings and also just religious involvement from a lot of people in the u.s a lot of younger people and you know that's that's fine and good like i said i'm an atheist but it it does mean that people need to start looking for meaning in their lives and unfortunately we we live in a culture that doesn't give them a lot of paths to understanding how to find meaning themselves and 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 obtain meaning except through religion and so often they turn to meaning through social causes and climate change is a particularly powerful cause because first of all it's a very complicated scientific issue it can be explained very simply but the details are actually or the the truth about it is actually buried in the details and it's a lot more complex than it looks on the surface but it's something that can be explained very simply. It's very forward-thinking, kind of like the afterlife. It's a very long-term, uh, a long-term issue, and it's about something greater than yourself. It's about the whole world. It's about you know the whole, the Earth saving the Earth. So it's a very uh, it has a lot of I think it 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 pulls a lot of the right emotional heartstrings and and taps into something really primal about having meaning in your life and standing for something important. So I understand why why it's a hot button button issue for the younger audience. The thing is, I'm not that old, but I'm I'm older than the millennials. And the thing is, a lot of people don't don't realize that this climate change uh, this climate change stuff has been around for quite some time, decades and decades and decades. And as a movement, and I won't I won't say. You know, I, I want to distinguish between the, the actual science and the kind of prediction and hysteria part of the movement and really the political movement. There's a difference between, between saying, here's what I think the science tells us, right, and, and debating that scientifically and, and really being hysterical about political action that's required to deal with whatever the science is predicting. And... You know, I know a lot of people maybe just weren't around or don't remember, especially if you're young, you just weren't around. But this idea of catastrophic climate change, there's, you know, the narrative is always industrialized society has done something so catastrophic to the earth, the fragile mother nature that we are all doomed. And, you know, there's been movies made about this and all that kind of stuff. But 
just as a reminder, you know, this has been going on for a while. In the 1970s, there were all these Earth Day predictions, right? They predicted the end of civilization in 15 to 30 years, right? End of civilization. That's a that's a pretty stark prediction, or sobering prediction. The end of civilization in 15 to 30 years, right? So that would have been by 1985 to 2000, right? Obviously, we're still here. That didn't happen. They predicted one to 200 million deaths to starvation yearly for 10 years, right? So that's a billion people, one to two billion people over a period of 10 years. They also predicted a new ice age by the year 2000. Now, all of these predictions and all of this hysteria was all driven by uh, misinterpreting or exaggerating scientific conclusions about the Earth's climate. Then more recently, Al Gore, had, uh, you know, famed, famed client, you know, we'll say global warming advocate. So eventually it was clear that the ice age wasn't happening and there was a global warming, uh, you know, the, the, the movement switched to saying it was global warming. And Al Gore famously uh, produced a documentary in 2006 called The Inconvenient Truth. And he predicted a lot of things in this. He predicted that sea levels would rise uh, by 20 feet, the melting of the, the Antarctic and Greenland ice sheets. Um, but of course, now we know that the South Pole is actually gaining more ice than it's losing. Um, we, we know that you know in places like Greenland, uh, there's kind of a melting cycle that happens and it hasn't really changed much. He also blamed global warming for Hurricane Katrina, which was a big deal at the time, but, and, and said that was going to be the new norm, but there, uh, you know, there weren't a lot more uh, hurricanes of, uh, of magnitude, you know, F3 or, or more in the U.S. Uh, since then. And, uh, in fact, from about 2005 till, I don't remember, somewhere 2016 or so, it was a, a huge drought of, of, uh, of hurricanes. Uh, devastating hurricanes and then in in he also predicted tornadoes would be would be a big problem in the future and of course we haven't seen that there's been you know over the past 60 or so years there's been a general uh, trend of declining tornadoes there's the kind of classic image of polar bears dying and that's the big deal the polar bears are going to die because of climate change um, there's actually more polar bears now than when al gore was born uh, polar bear population has been recovering. He he, you know, worried that the Arctic was melting. Uh, it's actually gaining in ice, and in 2015, it was actually the largest refreezing in over a decade that happened in the Arctic. So I'm not saying that there is, and and of course after Al Gore, uh, the the narrative switched from global warming to climate change. That wasn't a mistake. Right. The, the reason that, that the phrase shifted from global warming to climate change is climate change is much more vague, and there were starting to be uh, there's starting to be a lot of evidence that uh, the globe wasn't really warming according to the models that everyone was predicting, and they failed to predict the warming, and 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 uh, and so climate change became the uh, the term to use, and partly because climate change is very hard to argue with, so. 
climate change is, in, is nice and vague. You can't point to historical data and say, look, climate has been changing more. It's, a, it's That's very hard to do. So again, I'm not saying there's no scientific data suggesting that, that there is uh, an impact from human activity on the climate. Absolutely, there, there does seem to be some data to suggest that there is some sort of an impact. But a lot of, a lot of <clears throat> I'll say, people on the, the kind of climate change bandwagon who don't look a lot of, you know, do a lot of research or look into it very, very deeply, you know, they'll, they view CO2 as pollution, for example. CO2 is not pollution. Uh, it's, it's plant food. Still may be bad to have a lot of CO2 in the atmosphere, or at least too much. It, it can, can uh, result in, in greenhouse effects, sure. It's not pollution, right? So I think the question a lot of climate change people don't ask themselves is, you know, what's the goal? Is the standard that they want humans to flourish, right? Or is the standard that uh, they want to preserve the earth as is? Because the standard of preserving the earth as is, first of all, we don't really, it doesn't make any sense. The earth has changed dramatically over millennia and, and longer. And so the earth really is constantly changing. And, and yes, humans may be a part of that, but there's no ideal earth. There's no argument to be made that the earth wouldn't be better if it were one or two degrees warmer on average, like or five degrees warmer on average. Certain places would change and become very hot, but some very cold places with uh, land that can't be farmed and, pla- and places that can't grow, suddenly would become more green and certainly that might affect sea levels and the amount of shoreline and where the shore fell but you know that's not uh that doesn't mean the end of mankind that's not apocalyptic and and i think you know the the exciting thing about climate change for for young people is it it comes attached with this really dramatic story about the, the huge impact this could have. It's catastrophic. People love catastrophe and and like apocalyptic stories. There's going to be this, you know, it's not can't be nuclear war anymore because we're not in this cold war with with the Soviet Union. So it's it's going to be this climate change apocalypse. And that's just there's just not data to suggest that even if there was the climate change according to the models, that it would actually be an apocalypse for humans and that we couldn't adapt and change and survive and probably thrive. So it's not a, an apocalyptic, the end, of, the end of all mankind kind of scenario, but it can be painted that way and that gets very exciting for people. And I'll say one thing about climate change, and again, I'm not saying there's not data suggesting that there's anthropomorphic uh, impact on the Earth's climate, but it's something to point out to people who are very into the climate change narrative and the, the urgency and dire circumstances that require immediate action. If you really do care, and, and I, this is not a point that I came up with on my own, uh, Stefan Molyneux, I first heard this from Stefan Molyneux, uh, and, and I think it's a, an excellent point and it's worth repeating. If you care about man's impact on the climate, human's impact on on the climate. Well, the first thing you should be advocating for is no government debt. 
you should be advocating for not spending a dime more than the government's take in. No borrowing, no overspending. Why? Because borrowing and overspending leads to consumption in the present day. It leads to overconsumption now, right? Uh, at usually, at, I mean, always at the expense of underconsumption later. But all of this consumption is what's pumping CO2 into the atmosphere. All this burning of fossil fuels, all the things that the climate change activists worry about, they're all driven by an economy that is propped up and supported by massively leveraged governments. So if you actually cared about climate change, your first argument would be no more debt. Governments need to start living within their means, right? No more debt. In fact, you'd be advocating for austerity measures to start paying down debt, um, spending less, not consuming as much. You would be certainly against Keynesian economics. And so I think the only way you can really be a consistent climate change advocate is to argue for no government debt, austerity, uh, none of these social programs that Ocasio-Cortez is is proposing you really just want you you really want to get into the saving and austerity mode not the overspending and consumption mode if you really care about the the environment and you really care care about earth and you really think that humans are significantly contributing to catastrophic climate change of course that's not the position of alexandria ocasio cortez or almost virtually any of the climate activists, they think debt is just fine and they simultaneously believe in a lot of excess government spending. So her her climate change argument here, she basically is, is wanting to pass uh, laws requiring renewable energy and, and all of this stuff in, in a, you know in an unrealistic time frame she thinks it says Acasio or Alexandria believes we can be 100% free of fossil fuels by uh, 2035 and so you know I, I think you don't understand how energy works if you believe that's that's possible but I don't think facts matter too much I, this is not an issue that I think needs to be uh, picked apart by facts because it can be actually complex and and there's a lot to dig into here, but it's not really necessary to dig into all of it. Uh, you know, we could talk about how much uh, how much mining has to occur to make a solar panel and what kind of uh, dangerous heavy metals need to be to be mined and the impact that has on the environment and the battery uh, requirements, the impact that batteries have on the environment and the battery requirements for unstable power like solar and wind. Um, we would inevitably get into a discussion about uh, about nuclear power as well, and so this it can get pretty it can get pretty technical and intense. But at the high level, you got to realize that this position about mobilizing against climate change, she's not actually caring about climate change. This is a sort of a religion for for her demographic or at least people that that agree with her and the idea behind the religion is is really spending government money and creating some sort of quote utopia where the government dictates 
how technology evolves and what kind of energy people use. And a really good book I would recommend if you're interested in climate change. Damn, what's the name of it? It's by a guy who I know, actually. His name is Alec Epstein. I'm going to look look it up. Alex Epstein. I'm going to look it up really quickly because um, it's worth... Uh, Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. That's the name of it. Um, I don't think I have it on my shelf behind me, but it's worth looking at if you're interested in it. Um, Alex's basic premise is that your standard in terms of uh, climate change, your standard should really be human flourishing, not the preservation of any particular configuration of the Earth's climate and or plant life or ocean levels. Uh, really the standard is human flourishing. And it turns out that burning fossil fuels has actually uh, saved more lives and created more prosperity and flourishing of humans than most people give it credit for. And almost no one realizes how, how important fossil fuels are for, for everything you do. So uh, I, I would recommend that book. But again, getting back to this, this point on climate change for Ocasio-Cortez, I, this is just her... Uh, virtue signaling to the the cult slash religion of spend government money dictating how uh, energy is produced and consumed and it's a way to to have this kind of you know it plays on all this apocalyptic almost religious belief in in and uh, what will happen to the earth if we don't you know pass some particular green legislation tomorrow so, next issue she's got, uh, clean campaign finance. Alexandria believes that, the, this I'm reading again from her website, Alexandria believes that the only way for real reform to happen in Washington is for the means by which elections are funded to be overhauled from the bottom up. And so, look, and she cites Citizens United uh, versus FEC. You know, now, she makes this argument that money is not um, money is not speech. She cites the Constitution. She says it's not constitutional to consider money uh, speech. And she says this idea is far from any reasonable interpretation of the Constitution. So uh, if you remember from part one, the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez that we saw at the beginning was very strict constitutionalist when it came to uh, wars, but when it came to gun control, the Second Amendment didn't mean at all what it says, and she wasn't very much of a constitutionalist. But here with campaign finance reform, she is back into being a strict constitutionalist and believes that money isn't speech, blah, blah, blah. Now, the, the, the interesting point here, and I think the philosophical point here or at least the more philosophical point, is to really understand why this is a problem. Because it is a problem, right? Uh, I think, you know, there's a grain of truth to what she's saying in in the sense that there is a problem with money and politics. And and, um, so this resonates with people. They they recognize that there's a problem. But uh, the problem really, I I think she has it backwards. And I think we need to step back and examine what the issue really is. So 
imagine well actually let's start with a quote from one of my favorite authors when i was in high school one of the books that that changed my worldview or started to change me on uh, my worldview is uh i think i have it on my shelf hold on it's this book it's called uh parliament of horrors by pj o'rourke i obviously don't agree with everything he says but uh he was a writer for rolling stone and so this book it's called parliament of horrors a lone humorist attempts to explain the entire u.s government it's from the 80s or late yeah late 80s um i remember picking it up on the shelf when i was in the library and i was surprised very kind of conservative town and conservative upbringing and i was i was very excited that one of the chapter names let me find uh find this chip yeah one of the names of the chapters is and and pardon my my french for this but one of the one of the names of the chapters is our government what the fuck do they do all day and why does it cost so goddamn much money and uh i remember seeing that chapter heading and thinking i I need to read this book uh first of all there's a swear word in our library which was very exciting to me and second uh that was a really that was a really good question i had anyway to to quote pgr work there's a point in this book uh i think it's in the preface here yeah so he says uh he says anyway i thought i'd observe i i thought i'd observe the 1988 presidential race and then go to Washington for the first six months of the new administration, learn everything there is to know about government, and write a book. But the six months turned into two years. I'm not sure I learned anything, except that giving money and power to government is like giving whiskey and car keys to teenage boys. And that, to this day, that's one of my favorite quotes. Giving money and power to government is like giving whiskey and car keys to teenage boys. Put the book back here. So... Why am I bringing this up? Well, look, imagine two scenarios. Imagine a scenario that the libertarians might, might, uh, might prefer, right? Imagine a small, strictly limited government. Very small, not much power, right? Can't pass the regular, you know, a bunch of regulations, can't regulate a lot of industries, can't do a lot of things. Very limited, very, very limited government. So imagine a world like that. And imagine senators campaigning and congressmen campaigning and presidents and, and all, the, all the people campaigning for political office. Now, imagine that you're a business person with billions of dollars or millions of dollars, doesn't matter. And someone comes to you and says, I think we should bribe this guy. Obviously, you know, this doesn't, probably doesn't happen this overtly, but bear with me for a moment. Imagine, you know, your, your advisor comes to you or your, your, your guy in Washington, if you even have one. He or she comes to you and they say, hey, we should, uh, we really need to get Senator Smith on our side for this. And I think it's worth a million dollar contribution to his, uh, this fund he's got over here, this charity and this other thing. And, and also we could hire his friend over here for 500K. And look, all in, it'll cost us a couple million bucks. But, you know, I think it'd be really good to get him on our side. Well, the question the business owner is going to ask right away is, why? What the hell do I care if Senator Smith is on my side? He has no power to affect my business. 
can't change the regulations, can't pass new laws that bother me, uh, can't really screw with my competition. Why, why the hell would I waste $2 million on Senator Smith? It's dumb. Now imagine, and, and this is one of the reasons that uh, communism sucks, right? Now imagine a, a situation in which the government has infinite power and the senators can regulate anything as much as they want. Well, now your person in, you definitely, if you're a business now, you definitely have a person in Washington because you need one, right? Because they can affect your, your business quite significantly. And now your person, person in Washington comes in and says, hey, I think we need to spend a million dollars on this thing for Senator Smith and another 500K on this thing. And all in, it'll be $2 million to get Senator Smith on her, our side. Now the business, is, the business owner maybe says, uh, well, why? And this time there's an answer. And this time the answer is, well, Senator Smith is on the committee that's writing the legislation that will regulate us and our competitors. And if we can get him to write in something that makes it difficult for our competitors to do XYZ and easy for us to do ABC, then, well, that could, we could make a billion dollars off of that. And so the business owner looks at that and goes, well, that's a good investment. I can spend two million bucks, make the senator feel good, and uh, get a billion bucks out of it. That's, that's a sound investment. And so the money flows. And you can try and stop that flow of money. You know, the, the Soviet Union had plenty of rules about not bribing, but they were ignored. You can, you know, you can try and stop, stop that flow of money. You can try and stop the rules. Or sorry, you can try and set up rules as barriers and, and try and stop that flow of money. But at the end of the day, you're creating an irresistible incentive to, to throw money at Washington, either for outright bribes to get something you want as a business or just to protect yourself. I mean, you know, as a CEO, you have a fiduciary responsibility to your company. Uh, especially if you're a publicly traded company, you can you can get in trouble for not meeting your fiduciary responsibility. And if it comes out that you could have spent two million dollars to, you know, change legislation or to pay the right lobbyist to do the right thing, and that would have prevented your competitor from taking another ten percent market share away from you, well, you're in a lot of trouble if you didn't do that. You need to have a person in Washington, and you need to be basically trying to bribe slash influence slash whatever. You need to be spending money on those lobbyists because your shareholders will demand it. Because if you don't, your competitor will, and that's not gonna work well for you. So the problem here, and, and you know, this is one of those things, I think there are a few issues where I would say the, we can call them the Occupy Wall Street crowd, but really more generally the the young leftist slash democratic socialist crowd there's a few issues where i think you know there's a grain of truth or at least i i have some sympathy for their feeling about the issue and their recognition that there's a problem and this is one of those issues there is a problem with money in politics but the answer 
You know, the, the problem isn't the money in the politics, it's the power in the politics. Because money will chase that power, always. And you can't stop it. And I cite, and this should resonate with uh, Ocasio-Cortez supporters because Ocasio-Cortez is against the war on drugs. Look at the war on drugs. It didn't work. The government tried to regulate away drugs. They have laws, they've got armed agents, they have border patrol, they've got lots of enforcement. Still, you can go buy cocaine on the street if you want to pretty easily right? or, or any, other, any other hard drug. And so these laws don't stop the drugs. Why? Because there's demand. There's demand. People want cocaine. It's addictive. It's great. People want it. So it will happen. You can't stop it if there's demand. And people recognize that when it comes to the, the drug law. Well, the same thing applies when it comes to political power. There's demand for that power. That power is extremely valuable. There's a whole cycle of regulatory capture that, that works with industries. And that is to control or influence that cycle. It results in a lot of money. It's worth putting money into. I'm not saying it's moral, but it's worth doing. And sometimes you're almost compelled to do it or at least obligated as a CEO to do it. So the issue isn't the money, it's the power, right? You know, just like with the war on drugs, the issue isn't that you're not stopping drug dealers. The issue is that there's demand for drugs and there will, there will be that demand. And until you, you know, really solve the root cause for that demand, and that may involve very complex things in, in the drug war case, like therapy and, and rehab and that kind of stuff, right? Culture changes. Uh, until you solve that demand, you will always have the supply. And the same is true with politics. Until you, until you uh, stop the, the, until you cut off the power from politicians, right? There will always be money willing to come in and influence those politicians. And, you know, it's unfortunate here because it is a problem, but the Democratic Socialists and the Ocasio-Cortez crowd, they really view politicians, you know, politicians, they position themselves as heroes of the people, as these great martyrs, and public servant is even the, the phrase, which is a joke, right? Uh, but they're, they're not public servants. There are overlords. And these politicians, you know, they, they view themselves as heroes of the people. We are taught in government schools, of course, that they are these heroes. We're, we're, we're taught to idolize politicians, to think that they, they have their best interest at mind and they're very self-sacrificing and they're just doing this because they care. And I'm sure some of them do care. But they're really viewed as these heroes, right? And on the other side, then those are the people accepting the money. And the other side, you have these corporations. And, you know, look, the corporations are busy inventing iPhones, uh, you know, giving you thousands of hours of entertainment for 10 bucks a month on your, on your computer, you know, flying in their, their corporate jets and taking vacations in, in Fiji, right? CEOs make us envious as a culture. We look at CEOs and we're like, wow, can you imagine having as much money as Bezos? right and it just seems it seems ridiculous to us because none of us are as productive as bezos is and it's it's an envious we all envy people who have more than us that's natural and human and uh and so on the one hand you got people like bezos who are busy 
not to defend him. I mean, I, I don't like his politics, but you know, on the one hand, you got people like like Bezos or Bill Gates or you know uh, the late Steve Jobs, you know, busy inventing technology and giving it to us, and um, and then the other and and not really trying to you know position themselves as heroes of the people and certainly not supported by the media as heroes of the people every movie that hollywood makes uh, almost every movie uh the the evil villain is the is the ceo or some corporate dude right it's never it's rarely the politician right so that's the culture we live in and the politicians are these heroes of the people these martyrs and self-sacrificing uh, servants of the people and so when we look at the in, at this flow of money in, in, to politicians in order to to, to gain access to power, we naturally blame the the evil corporations and the evil CEOs. But in the, in actuality, the problem is the power that the politicians have. They shouldn't be able to sell that power because they shouldn't have access to that power. And so, on this campaign finance reform, uh, or she calls it clean campaign finance, on this issue, uh, I get I get her concern about it. But the, I, I think it's missing a, an understanding of the dynamic that's really happening and why it's happening uh, underneath this. And philosophically, you know, if you give someone a gun and you say, and they're the only person in the room with a gun, and you say, you can shoot whoever you want and do what you want and make up the rules, uh, well, that person has a lot of power. And so people are going to do a lot of favors for that person so they don't get shot. And so that's the situation that we're in and um, it would it would be good for for people concerned about uh, money and, and and influence in politics to really focus on curtailing the power that the government has. And I guarantee that money will dry up faster than uh, I don't know faster than I can't think of a good analogy faster than Bernie Sanders will issue a new tax. That money will dry up very quickly. So, that is that point of hers. Next point. Let's see. She's got... Where is it? Here we go. <clears throat> the next point in her platform, higher education slash trade school for all. Now, she starts with kind of a sentence that I think is funny. She says, roughly every 100 years, the United States <laughs> expands its public education system to match its increasingly advanced economy. I, I'm laughing because, like, we're slightly over 200 years old. Like, what's roughly every 100 years? You don't have, that's not a pattern, sweetheart. Uh, no, I'm not being a misogynist. It's just, I'm using it derogatorily because it's ridiculous. Uh, I'm, I'll, I'll come up with another uh, name for her but look it, <laughs> there's no pattern you can't say roughly every 100 years yeah if you're talking in terms of uh, millennia sure uh, but when when your country's a, a little bit more than 200 years old what roughly every 100 years is not a thing so anyway so she's her argument here is roughly every 200 years we we expand our public education system to match our increasingly advanced economy uh which seems like it, it's an odd, like philosophically, it's kind of a weird, weird way to look at this. It's, uh, hey, this 
this cycle seems to happen. So we, we should follow it. I mean, I'm not sure what that means. I mean, you could say roughly every day my uncle gets sloshed and falls asleep on the couch. That doesn't mean he should do it tomorrow, right? So anyway, that's her argument is that we do it every hundred years, which again is it's funny. And, um, and so now it's time, apparently. Now, we're not at 300 years, but she did use the word roughly. So that, that justifies. Apparently, uh, we're, we're using the it's time argument. And she says, look, you know, basically she wants to make public colleges tuition free. And she also wants to cancel student debt. And in which in which the federal government cancels, I'm reading, in which the federal government cancels the loans it holds directly and buys back the financing of privately owned loans on behalf of borrowers to liberate generations of Americans, blah, blah. So actually, I, you know, I'm going to look up something here because uh, Alexandria, I'm gonna, let's look up. I don't usually like to do this stuff in real time, but um, screw it. Let's look up. What do you think she majored in? What do you think, Alexandria? Because she's still paying her student debts. She mentioned that the other day. What did she, let's look at her degree. Uh, okay, so she has a degree in economics probably Keynesian economics. And I can't believe she has a degree in economics. <laughs> That's a separate issue. Uh, and international relations. Okay. So look, um, why should we have to pay for your degree in economics and international relations? Now you actually did well, Ocasio-Cortez. You should be able to pay off your student loans. You're, you're a senator, or sorry, a, a congressperson, and you'll be fine. But Look, someone who went to school for, you know, some stupid social justice major. Social justice probably is a major, right? You go to school for something useless. You borrow 50K or 100K or whatever you borrow. Why should the rest of us have to pay for that, right? I mean, there's lots of things I'd love to go to school for. If you're all going to pay for it, maybe I'll just start going. I mean, I could be a perpetual student. Being a student is fun. So... You know, this this idea that we're just going to go forgive people uh, of their of their students loan student loans because they made bad decisions and took out loans that actually don't pay for themselves uh, is is pretty ridiculous. Now, but the, the bigger question here to ask, there's a couple questions here to ask, and 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 one of them we'll just start with the the, the big one, which is what what is education. And I don't, I know that sounds like a really big question, but, and maybe it sounds like it's uh, too big, but I think we really need to ask ourselves that question. Because when, when you think about education, there's a lot of emphasis, at least a lot of people talk about being able to get a good job, right? That kind of thing. Now, as it turns out, apparently a lot of people are going through 12 plus years of government education, i.e. all the way through high school, and getting high school degrees, and they're still not worth $15 an hour on uh, in the labor market, which is why there's a push for a $15 minimum wage. We might want to ask ourselves what's wrong with those schools, that they're churning people out who aren't worth $15 an hour. But, you know... I think we really do need to step back and, and understand what is education. You know, it used to be kind of this elitist, upper-class leisure thing. 
you know, education, you'd get education to, you know, you'd go read some poetry and some Aristotle and be able to make good conversation at your white glove dinner parties and with your powdered wigs or whatever, right? I mean, it was snooty and not particularly practical. In fact, there's even a, maybe an air of impracticality intentional, like a, a, a almost as a badge of honor, right? The impracticality of the education and a disdain for, for actually producing and working with your hands. So that's one kind of education. I think we would all agree, I would hope we would all agree that if you want to do that, no one else should pay for it, right? No one, no one should pay for that but you. That is a leisure activity. That's just uh, enhancing your mind, body, and soul, so to speak, right? But uh, if we're going to start paying for that kind of education, then we need to start paying for your landmark retreats and Tony Robbins uh, seminars. So that's not the kind of education that we're talking about. When people talk about education, including uh, the, the way that Ocasio-Cortez talks about it, they're really talking about education that has practical applications to their, their lives uh, as adults, being able to support yourself, get a job, be productive members of society. Well, it's naive to think that any major at any college gives you something that the marketplace values uh, and, and that any major is worth it. And prior to a lot of government loans and, and, and you know, guaranteed student loans and that kind of thing, you know, my father grew up, I remember him telling me these stories, my dad grew up uh, on a farm, not, not wealthy by any means, like, uh, you know, definitely poor, grew up on a farm, uh, trying to make ends meet, and he went off to a, a state school. And to afford that, he operated a fruit stand on, uh, out by the front of his farm along the road. Every summer, he operated a, a fruit stand. I think he may, may have also had uh, manual labor at, at, uh, at Union Carbide. But he, he operated a fruit stand and did some manual labor at Union Carbide. And he you know, worked his butt off in the summers. And his work from the summer would result and and you know it's i'm i'm saying this it's it wasn't work that was like made a lot of money it was meager amount of money he was nothing special about this work right it was a fruit stand and 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 uh and working manual labor during the summer he would save enough money to go to college and for the to pay for his entire tuition and room and board for uh, the rest of the year now and so, and he went through all of his undergraduate that way. He ended up getting, uh, uh, getting more another degree after that. But he, he, all of his undergraduate, that's how he, that's how he went to college, and that's unheard of. I mean, it was unheard of even when I went to school. The idea that you could, you know, any reasonable and any and normal high school kid or slash college kid could could save up money during the summer working in manual labor to to pay for their tuition room and board. I mean, that that was unheard of even when I went to school and and nowadays it's you know in order of my, um, not quite in order of magnitude but it's a few it's like several three four five times as expensive than when I went to school and so we have to ask ourselves 
what changed? Why did this happen? Why was it so cheap then? I mean, has education changed a lot? I would argue uh, he probably got a better education than than you do now if you go to school. I mean, obviously, technology has advanced and knowledge and science has advanced, but the applicability of his, his education was... Uh, was quite high. He ended up getting a job and, and working in that career for his whole life. So, you know, college hasn't gotten better. It certainly hasn't got 10 times or, or 20 times or however many times better. It's certainly not that much better if it is better at all, which I would argue it's worse. So what happened? Well, one of the things that happened is the government started to guarantee a lot of loans. And this is the interesting thing, right? When you don't pay for something, you don't care how much it costs. And students don't, they often, you know, if you can get loans, they, they don't care about costs so much because the loans are this kind of thing in the future that they'll, they'll pay for later. They get to borrow. And so eh, the loans aren't, the cost doesn't matter. Whether it's 10K or 40K a semester, borrowing it anyway. It, it matters a little bit. And, and of, of course, very uh, responsible and conscientious students pay very close attention to that. But to a large extent, it's easier to spend money that you've just kind of borrowed that you pay back at some arbitrary time in the future than it is to, to actually not be able to borrow the money and have to spend it right now. And so once the government started doing that, colleges could start charging more. And colleges just started charging more. And another reason they started charging more is there was this kind of backwards cultural uh, meme that that started to spread. And that was that, you know, people looked around and they looked at the, the, the people who went to college. And of course, you know, back in the day, people that went to college were, were obviously better educated and, and, uh, and smart, you know, smarter often and just to get into college. And people looked at that and said, well, a college degree is is valuable and getting getting a job a college degree helps you get a job and of course that was true because not many people went to college certainly not, not as many people and so you had very few college graduates proportionally compared today to today and uh, you didn't have government backing backing student loans for the most part and so you basically had you know a a uh, limited supply of of college grads and you had some sort of price control on college through the market because you know had college charged as much back then as they do now and there was no government loans my dad could not have afforded to go to college at all so so you had this this these these uh government loans and this idea that that a college degree was the reason for your success and so you had this mass rush, this demand to go to college. And of course, again, supply and demand. If, if fewer people are trying to go to college, uh, colleges can't charge as much. But now everyone's wanting to go to college because everyone has been convinced that, oh, well, college is the thing. College is what makes you successful. Can't get a good job without college, right? If you, get, if you go to college, you'll get a good job. Um, that's what I was told uh, growing up. And, and on top of that, you've got the government willing to back your loans. And so... You know, you get people who go to college and they borrow $100,000 to get a degree in social work. Now, social work may be a fine career, but it's not worth $100,000 of debt. It's not. 
you won't pay that back in any reasonable amount of time and you'll be strapped with that debt and and resenting it and kicking yourself for decades because you're not going to make that much money back and you know we're in this this situation where college is just viewed as kind of everyone has to go regardless of what degree you get and it turns out that some degrees are more valuable than others on top of that colleges have started to really just especially in the humanities colleges have just gone to shit and they are uh, teaching horrible postmodern useless crap and so you get people who are barely qualified to be baristas uh, but they've got eighty thousand dollars of student debt hanging over their heads so the answer is not to make college free it's not to make the government i.e all of us pay for for colleges because you know the problem earlier so originally we had some kind of price we had a market-based price for college and it kept prices low and we started to get rid of this market-based price by the government really getting involved and backing loans and that kind of thing and 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 prices of course, when the government gets involved and mucks with prices, they skyrocket. And now the suggestion is, well, why don't we muck with prices more by basically just making it free? Well, look, if it's free, how many people do you think are going to go to college? Everyone. And how much is going to? How much are people going to care? How much it costs? They're not right. And now it becomes, well, universities don't really have to provide value to students and demonstrate to students why degrees are valuable and why you should go there. Now they just have to convince someone in the government that they need the grant or whatever it is, if the government's paying, or it depends on, on the program and how it works. So uh, the philosophy by this higher education, free higher education thing is is really that uh, everyone, it's, it's again, it's communism for, for education, right? Everyone should pay for everyone else to go, which means uh, you know, all of us who, who who went to college and paid for it now have to pay for people who want to go get crappy degrees that are worthless. So, um, so we get taxed so that they can uh, waste their time in college. So, you know, the the this is an issue where all, I almost want to say again, she's citing a real problem, which is high cost of education. But you got to ask yourself. And, and, and I would argue, bef well, so two things. One, you got to ask yourself, look, why is, why is higher education so expensive? And I just explained that. And you also have to ask yourself, well, if we're going to worry about education, why is a high school degree worthless? What happened to a high school degree? You used to be able to get a high school degree, go get a job somewhere, and support a family without your spouse having to go to work and have kids and get a house. And, like, that was not unheard of. What's happened? I think one of the things that happened has happened is our uh, primary and high school education has has deteriorated, and it's not because we're not spending enough money. The U.S. spends more money than most other developed countries per student on our our classes, so we need to ask ourselves what's wrong with our education system, and we can maybe start with K through twelve before we start giving away uh, free college degrees or free college educations. And I'll put education in quote. So, you know, if we really asked ourselves what the purpose of education was, uh, which, is, which is kind of what I started with at the beginning, which is what is education, I think we need to say to ourselves, well, 
if education is is for getting a job and and uh, being productive and and helping you to have a, a a productive comfortable life then that's the standard by which we need to judge these degrees and most of these degrees in the humanities majors at least are failing that test uh, pretty abysmally okay so let's go to her next her next point oh yeah I forgot I was keeping uh, I was keeping score during the last during part one of this episode I was keeping score on on points of her of her 15 points ones that were kind of okay I got a plus two so far I don't think I need to add any more to that I think we're still at plus two Okay, so her next point is women's rights. All right. Women's rights is one of these phrases that uh, no one disagrees with the phrase, but it doesn't mean what, what it says, and so there's a lot to disagree with underneath it. I'm quoting again, Alexandria believes that women's rights are human rights and that all women deserve equal access to workplace safety, equal pay, paid paternal leave, full access to health care, and more. Okay, so the and more is telling. Uh, so, yes, so they, they deserve equal access to paid parental leave. I, I mean, women have unequal access to paid parental leave in, in, in their favor. Um, women get time off to have kids. Men usually don't. Uh, full access to health care. I, I mean, she already addressed health care earlier. I don't know why women need full access to health care. I don't know what she's talking about there, but maybe she's talking about uh, we should pay for their abortions. Uh, abortions are a choice, so uh, it's somewhat like elective surgery. So that's kind of weird. But look, I mean, you know, should women be treated equally in the workplace? Sure. So, so then she goes on to say she wants to create a society in which women, which includes black women. I'm glad she clarified for us that black women are women. Uh, women, Black women, uh, native women. Good, good. So native women are also women. Poor women, immigrant women, disabled women, Muslim women, lesbian, queer, and trans women are free to care for and nurture their families in a safe and healthy environment from structural free from structural impediments. I think she's assuming that women are caring and nurturing and have family environments, but we'll let her get away with that. So, <sighs> this is a laundry list of kind of things that should be in kind of this weird moral sense, and she wants the government to do them. So, should women be treated equally in the workplace? Yeah, uh, of course they should be treated equally. Should the government be able to punish employers based on what they perceive the employer is doing with respect to hiring and firing and with regard to gender? That's another issue, right? So, you know, we have a situation now in which... You know, if you're a smaller companies don't have to deal with this, but if you're a larger company, and it depends on, I think it depends partly on your state, but certainly here in California, if you're a company, I think it's over, I don't know the number, but uh, maybe 50 employees, uh, you're subject to evaluation of the, a demographic evaluation of your companies where 
the, the company where the uh, the government will come in and they'll say, well, you got this number of employees, you have to have this number of black people and this number of uh, females. And I, I don't know if they they want a certain number of Muslims or disabled women or lesbian, queer. I don't, how would you know someone's lesbian? Uh, unless you're like an oddly creepy employer who asks. Anyway, you're supposed to like check these boxes and they're going to kind of measure your uh, your employee pool and make sure you have the right numbers of each special group of people. So if you respect women philosophically and you believe women are actually equal, not if you just say you believe in women's rights and you support women, but if you actually believe that women are equal humans with agency, you don't look at the number of women working in a place and if it doesn't match some standard that you think if it doesn't match maybe the the number of women proportionally in the population as a whole you don't immediately assume that it's a bunch of misogynists not hiring women it might be that women choose to not work at that company or in that field for some particular reason the thing that that's that the thing that you can look at to know that this women's rights um especially with respect to the workplace the thing the thing that you can look at to, to demonstrate how much of a crock of shit this is and how um, this is totally disingenuous is, you know, states like California and people like Ocasio-Cortez, they will complain all day about the number of women in Congress, the number of women on boards, the number of women CEOs. But they never complain that there aren't enough homeless women or there aren't enough women in construction, or there aren't enough women in dangerous jobs, in low-paying jobs. And they don't complain about that because uh, they don't want those things. But those are all areas that are massively overrepresented by men. Most men are homeless. Or sorry, most homeless are men. <laughs> Not most men are homeless. That would be horrible. Most homeless people are men. Uh, most low-paying, manual-wage, crappy jobs are done by men. But if you actually believed in making everything equal from a numbers standpoint and from this kind of weird outcomes-based needs to be the right number of women in and in a group, you would be going to the garbage collection companies and telling them they're not hiring enough women. But they're not doing that. They're going to boardrooms telling them they're not hiring enough women. So right away, you know that this is not uh, a genuine concern, even for, e even for outcomes-based equality. That's not even the concern. And outcomes-based equality isn't even, shouldn't even be the goal. So, uh, so it's not even based on that. And to make matters worse, outcomes-based equality isn't even what you should be going for, right? So if you believe that women's rights are human rights, then it, rec it, it means, which is what she says, then it means that you recognize human rights. And human rights include the right to, of free association, which means if you want to hire someone, you should be able to hire them. And the government should really not get in, up in your business about why you did or didn't hire someone. Will there be bigots who don't hire certain groups? Yes. Yes, there will be. But people are free to be bigoted jerks. Now, I think if you don't hire women at your company because you're a misogynistic pig, your company will, in the long run, not do very well because you won't be hiring the best people. I give, you know, I spend 
a lot of time giving advice to founders. I've got a portfolio of startups that I manage. I've, I've been an angel investor for, for a decade and a half now. I've run venture firms. I've been a founder. The advice that I always give to companies is hire the best person for the job. It doesn't matter if they're a lesbian, queer, trans woman, or Muslim, or a white guy. It doesn't matter. Hire the best person for the job. And if you believe that women had agency, and if you believed that women actually are capable of competing, right, then you wouldn't lower standards for women, and you wouldn't ask for special treatment for women, and you wouldn't ask for outcomes-based programs and, and quotas. You would just say, hey, let women compete in the open market because I'm sure they'll do fine. And I know they will. I know lots of super smart, successful women. And uh, sometimes they run into issues where being a woman is used against them. Sometimes they run into issues where being a woman is great for them uh, because they're surrounded by guys and they can manipulate men very well because the, the guys that tend to be misogynistic pigs also tend to be very easily manipulated by, by smart women. So, you know, look, it's a double-edged sword. No one's saying that we want to support bigots, but, uh, but the idea that there's some massive problem with women's rights that the government needs to, to get in and muck with is, is patently false, frankly, and, and really she doesn't even believe it. Because if she really believed in outcomes-based, uh, quota-based kind of you know, uh, assessment of companies, like I said, she'd be arguing for more homeless women. So the next part of this is that uh, reproductive freedom. She talks about reproductive freedom for marginalized, uh, marginalized genders, including cisgender women. I don't know how cisgender women are marginalized genders, but maybe they are, and trans people. Um, she doesn't want to. But then, but then her next sentence is she doesn't want to. She does not accept any federal, state, or local rollbacks, cuts, or restrictions on the ability of individuals to access quality reproductive health care services, birth control, AIDS care, blah, blah, blah. So look, um, she uses this word access. In fact, she used it actually way back. I'm going to scroll back up. She used it in her Medicare for All argument. She said she wanted to allow all people in the U.S. to buy, allow, so, see, so here, here's her language. Medicare for all will reduce the existing cost of healthcare by allowing all people in the US to buy into a universal healthcare system. It's an interesting word. So leftists tend to do this, especially the socialists and the commies tend to do this, right? They tend to use words that make it sound like they're talking about giving you a choice and giving you access to something, but they mean the opposite. You're already allowed to buy healthcare. Right? She's going to allow all people to buy into a universal healthcare system. A universal healthcare system isn't optional. You don't get allowed to buy into a universal healthcare system. You are forced to buy into a universal healthcare, healthcare system. She's not allowing you of anything. And so if we, that was that one. If we scroll back down to the, um, this argument she's got going on for the women's rights section of her platform, you know, she says she doesn't accept rollbacks, cuts, restrictions on the, on the ability of individuals to access. So this is weird because she's 
she uses this word on the ability to access this stuff as if as if they were somehow it makes it sound almost like we're not letting you the government currently isn't letting you access quality health care but you're allowed to access health care you may not be able to afford things but that's not the same as like giving you the ability the ability to access i mean i guess technically you could argue that like funding something is, is giving you the ability to access it but the language is is very uh, intentionally chosen here it it and and it, you know she follows up by saying this means open access to blah blah she's talking about access look if you're in the u.s you have access to everything you have access up the wazoo you have more access than you can possibly imagine more access than anyone has had ever in history what you may not have is the means that's a separate issue right I've got access to private jets. I just can't buy one, right? Um, so access is not the same thing as paying for it, but they use the language to kind of obfuscate, to kind of obfuscate what they're doing so that it sounds like it's just this, like, I just want to give people access. What I really want you to do is force other people to pay for, uh, for all this stuff, uh, birth control, affordable abortions, yeah, blah 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 look you know um why should anyone else have to pay for your birth control i mean seriously why should anyone have to pay for anyone else's birth control i guess maybe if you're in a relationship and you want your partner to pay for birth control but you know it's this weird um and 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 this is not under the healthcare section this is under women's rights so the implication here is that women have a right to have men pay for their birth control uh that doesn't sound like women have a lot of agency. It sounds like you think women are children. That's what this whole section sounds like, is that she thinks women are children who can't get jobs and can't buy health care on their own. So we need to make sure that the bad companies don't reject their applications and that people pay for their birth control because the poor little women can't fend for themselves. Uh, it's it's To me, it's gross and anti-feminist. And I, I have a daughter and... Uh, if someone talked like this to her, I, I would uh, have a hard time not smacking them upside the head because uh, this is this is insulting to women, and it's it's insulting to my my wife, and it's insulting to my daughter, and it's insulting to women in general that that they are incapable of going out and getting themselves equal pay and paying for medical services that they they might need. So. Uh, having a special category for women's rights is is uh, a little bit ridiculous so uh, that was a little bit of a rant let's go on to the next topic now i just want to i just want to point out that we're getting into i guess this whole platform is partly this mindset but uh this last one women's rights and this next one which is support lbgtqia plus they are getting into the busybody mindset and this is something you got to understand about the left uh, especially recently you know that classically the left wanted to kind of leave you alone at least in some areas of your life they wanted to get up into your wallet but they mostly wanted to leave you alone in other areas of your life but now the the left is really about controlling every aspect of your life it's um it's like the worst possible busybodies you could find just nosy neighbors with 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 power to you know, police what you say and who's in your house. And uh, it's, it's, it's pretty ridiculous. So 
in that vein, we, we move on to the support LGBTQIA plus group. Um, I think she's probably missing a few letters in that acronym. I can see right away that Two-Spirit is missing, so she hates Native Americans. You can go accuse her of that. So uh, given the, she says, given the current administration's attacks on LGBTQIA plus, I'm just going to say LGBTQ rights, uh, one thing is clear. Support for and the solidarity with LBGQ commu- LBGTQ community is more important than ever. <sighs> All right. So she talks about rolling back guidance to protect the rights of trans students in schools and blah, blah, blah. Look, you know, I did a show. Uh, I think I've talked about Title IX before. Um, this issue is basically the same as the women's rights issue. This is just... Uh, Ocasio-Cortez virtue signaling to the uh, the lesbian, gay, and trans communities that um, she's she's an ally. That's all she's really doing. In, in truth, do we need a lot of legislation here? No. Um, and and this is worth talking about, not in terms of gender, because we just talked about the women's rights issue. And, and I feel like it's redundant to talk about the gender part of this, so, uh, or at least the, the, the female part of this, but it is, it is actually interesting to talk about the, the kind of greater gender part of it, the, the trans and, and non-gender binary, or, or I don't know what the, the language is of the day, but there is, and you saw this first, you know, you saw this in Canada with Jordan Peterson's rise to fame, there is this insistence that not only uh, are there an infinite number of transient and malleable genders that can be whimsically applied at any moment during the day uh, arbitrarily, but there is a growing movement to police how everyone else treats those people and speaks to them. Now. Including, you know, mandatory pronoun usage and that kind of stuff. I'm not, just to be clear, I don't think you should discriminate based on uh, on sexual orientation or gender. If you're hiring someone, if you're going to be in a relationship with someone, you kind of have to discriminate based on those things because <laughs> you need a match. But... <sighs> I think we need to separate the sexual orientation from gender stuff of this acronym because let's go through this. So LBGTQIA means lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer. I don't know what I is. I forget. An A. I don't know. Maybe A is a gender. I guess I should know this. There's been a push that's happened recently. And I talked about this on a podcast earlier on one of the deprogrammed shows. People's sexual orientations are starting to be lumped in with people's uh, gender. And again, I'm going to use gender in the social justice warrior sense of gender, which is your identity, not your sex at birth or or your chromosomal uh, makeup. We can have an argument about that some other day, but just to make it easy, I'm going to use the the social justice warrior kind of leftist gender um, nomenclature here. And so... It's interesting that the, everyone is lumped into the same category here because most lesbian and gay people, I, I want to say people of, of the ones I know, but I actually think this is just true generally. Most lesbian and gays 
they're pretty boring and normal just like the rest of us, right? Uh, you know, they've got a mortgage and family and job or whatever. And, you know, they're, they're not... They're not out causing a stink. They're not, you know, protesting which bathroom they should be able to use. They're not asking to be called special things or get special treatment. They're just... They're just normal people who have sex in a different way than, than heterosexual people. And most people just don't care about that anymore. At least, and maybe I'm in a self-selecting uh, group because I'm in the Bay Area, but, you know, whether you're gay or, or lesbian, no one, no one cares other than your partner uh, at this point. We, you know, we've legalized gay marriage, and, you know, I know there are holdouts and there's pockets in the U.S. of, of bigots who, who care, but you know, for the most part, I think culture has moved on. We don't care who you're having sex with. But that's not the same as gender, especially when gender is something that starts to imp uh, impose obligations on how we speak about you and how we speak to you. So, you know, there was uh, on the Google, there was this Google seminar that James Damore attended before he wrote his memo. I think his memo was a was a. a response to this seminar. And I heard from someone, I, they work at Google, so I assume this is true, but they said um, there was someone in the room at that seminar that said they identified as an empty room part of the time and a, a dragon the other part of the time. I think this might have been mentioned on an earlier show. Now, there's a level of psychological dysfunction when that's your identity. And trying to force the rest of the world to treat that as if it is completely normal and there's nothing wrong with it, I think is destructive for everyone. There's this worship of dysfunction that has evolved. And frankly, I think it's going to hurt normal gay and lesbian people. And look, there are some normal trans people too, right? People who uh, legitimately feel like the opposite gender. And, you know, I, I've, I've worked with some in the past. They, you know, they are the gender they identify with. No one cares. I mean, there's probably some some people who who you know quietly joke about our stuff because it's weird to them, and and I think that will die out over time as there's more acceptance there. But there are trans people who are you know for the most part pretty normal. You know, they go about their day. They uh, they just identify as a gender other than uh, the gender they were born with. And there's even some biological. Uh, there's even some biological justification for that in some cases where you can be born with a different, uh, you can be born, for example, with a, a female brain configuration and male genitalia. That can happen. And so, you know, those people go, go through their life as trans people. I'm not talking about them. And I'm not talking about gays and lesbians. But there is a whole subset. And, and this is why this acronym is ever expanding, right? She, like I said, she missed the TS in the beginning, two spirit. Um, this acronym is ever expanding because it's it's adding on dysfunction and if someone legitimately thinks that they're a dragon slash an empty room they need therapy that's not healthy they are not a dragon or an empty room and 
you know, you can say I like to pretend I'm a dragon in an empty room. Maybe that's just imagination. But to really and truly think that people should address you as if you were an empty room or a dragon and to try and enforce that, that's a problem. And I think I think there's a danger here with this issue, with this um, the direction this community has taken and the blind virtue signaling for support of this community that people like Ocasio-Cortez are, uh, are signaling here. Because it's different from saying I support gays and lesbians and trans, but, mm, you know, adding all these, these, these uh, letters and supporting people who identify as TAC helicopters, and also you've got issues now where, you know, 60-year-old men can say, well, I... I identify as a six-year-old girl and I'm wearing a tutu and I'd like to go into the, the little girl's locker room. I mean, that kind of stuff rubs people the wrong way. It's a problem and it's a dysfunction. It's not an identity. And so I, I think she's doing that community a disservice by lumping in legitimately dysfunctional people with normal gays and lesbians. And so... Uh, I I kind of I think that the philosophy behind this is again I don't really think there's a philosophy here I think this is just her way of virtue signaling um, to the community and kind of talking about discrimination and blah 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 and you, you, you can always find examples of people uh, hating on members of that community because there is still a decent amount of, of bigotry um, in, in the world against against people that are lesbian or gay or trans and so you know you you can you can uh, you can cite those issues, but the arguments against, you know, kind of outcomes based uh, or uh, quotas or kind of trying to police why people hire or fire people or, or whatever, whether it's based on their sexual orientation or their gender. Again, that's just the same argument as women's rights. It's this intrusive, busybody police state mentality of making sure that you don't have the right to associate with whomever you want. And if you want to be a bigot and not associate with someone because they're gay, well, you probably lost someone who's, uh, who's smart, a hard worker, and has a better fashion sense than you. So your loss. Okay, next option. So in her next topic here, I think it's the second to last one. Yeah, it is. Her next point here is support seniors. I mean, I don't think she means by helping them cross the street. Let's see. <laughs> Again, so support seniors. This is a nice little platitude. I support seniors. Alexandria is a strong supporter of Social Security, which is the most successful program for social uplift and social justice in the history of th this country. <sighs> okay, so Social Security, what is it? I think it's $23 trillion in debt, uh, unfunded liabilities for Social Security. So there's some success for you. Um, and, you know, this is just pandering to the old, older generation because they vote. And, uh, and she's wanting to say, don't worry, we're paying for I'm giving college kids free stuff, but I'm also giving you free stuff. And she has a little icon here of the free medicine she's going to give away, basically, um, with the power of her, with her new, her new congressional power that she can, so she can give goodies away. Um, because I do want to talk about the philosophy behind some of these things, though, let's talk about the effect of programs like Social Security. And 
and the impact on on all of us. You can, you know, in the first part of this this episode, uh, this is the this is the second part that you're watching now. In the first part, I talked about a through line in Ocasio Cortez's philosophy with respect to the people of the United States and the government, and I talked about her really seeing that relationship as a parent-child relationship, as the government as the parent and the rest of us as the the children who both cannot take care of ourselves and for whom the parent is obligated to provide and take care of. And that's the mentality behind Social Security. The mentality is that people won't be able to save for their own retirement, that people will be poor planners, they won't save for their retirement, and as a result, uh, we will have poor elderly who will be a burden probably to their families more than anything else, but to society in general. That's the idea there. Well, think about, think about what that means. It means that you believe that the population can't take care of themselves. They don't know how to plan. They don't know how to save money. And they desperately need your uh, wisdom in saving on their behalf. And you'll force them to do that. And not only will you will you force them to do that, but you're going to take their savings and then you're going to borrow it. You're going to borrow against it and spend it on some other stuff and just kind of pay them back from future taxpayers. Now, you really need to believe people are, are dumb and incompetent for this. But let's assume you do pe- believe people are, are dumb and incompetent. Well, you end up with a really a self-fulfilling prophecy because people stop worrying about saving for the future because the government has taken care of it for them. Now, of course, heaven forbid something goes wrong with Social Security and the benefits need to be drastically reduced or the program goes bankrupt altogether, you're going to have a lot of people left out in the cold and you'll be right back where you started or where you were worried about, which is um, you know, poor old people. Now, of course, when Social Security started, old people loved it because they didn't pay in enough um, to deserve it, but they got it. So uh, thanks, baby boomers, for that one. Uh, you made out well. And by the way, millennials, if you're looking at who ruined society for you, it's not the capitalists, it's the baby boomers. It was mostly the hippies. They got in control and and really gave you a lot of socialism that's causing problems for you today. But let's talk about what happens with the incentive to save money. So if you don't have something like a social security uh, system, people are, are forced to save money for themselves. And of course, some people won't, right? Some people will not save money and they will, uh, they will suffer and they will be sob stories and there'll be you know, news segments on them about them eating cat food and they'll be a burden to their families. And what happens? Well, we watch those news segments and we see that they're burdens to their families and the, the kids regretting or resenting them. And what do we do? Well, people do change their behavior. We do react to stimuli. We did evolve 
uh, to be at the top of the food chain on the planet. So we react to stimuli. We adapt to our environment. And we start to see people like that. We think maybe we should save, honey. Maybe we should start to save. You turn to your spouse. Hey, maybe we should start to save a little bit more. I don't want to... I don't want to be that guy. I don't want to be the person with, you know, this huge burden on my children and eating cat food when I'm older. And so you really are forced to adopt a, you're not forced, but you really are incentivized to adopt the culture of savings. And that culture of savings does wonders for, uh, for your net worth. Because, of course, unlike Social Security, you can put your own savings in an interest-bearing uh, account and you get compound interest on it. It also means the government can't then go borrow against your savings and spend a bunch of money they don't have. Therefore, uh, being, you know, that whole fear about being a burden to your kids because you didn't save and Social Security is supposed to fix that. It's just shifting the burden and multiplying it, right? The burden now is that there's all these unfunded liabilities uh, that your kids will have to pay for or your grandkids. So, you know, it's, it's weird. You've got the same group really worried about future generations when they talk about the, the climate and earth but when it comes about to uh the the amount of debt that future generations are burdened with well we all just ignore that that doesn't <laughs> that doesn't matter so you know i think this this idea that the government is going to be your daddy and and force you to save and and not really even saving they're just going to take money and say that it's savings and Hopefully they'll be around. I don't plan on Social Security being solvent when, when I need it. So, you know, they're, they're going to take your money, use it to borrow, spend it mostly on the military and some other crap. And, uh, you know, maybe you'll get a pittance later so you don't have to eat cat food. But it certainly teaches you to not bother saving, right? Because this is the thing. When, when, when you're out on your own and you're responsible for your entire life and you look forward decades and you think I'm responsible for everything that's going to happen and I got to plan for it. You plan for it and and you learn to be responsible. But if someone comes along and says, "Nah, there's daddy, sugar daddy government will take care of it for you. Don't worry about it." Well, you stop. You don't have that savings mindset. And you probably don't save generally. You'd probably save a lot more if you were in charge of your own retirement. But of course, uh of course, we can't have that because the government believes you're a child. And Ocasio-Cortez believes that you're a child. And therefore, we just need to do more uh, more and more planning, telling you what to buy, telling you how to save, taking money for you so that you can't spend it, and uh, writing you checks to buy your own cat food later. So what else does she have here? Let's see on support seniors. And more Medicaid expansion. She believes affordable housing should be within the means of a full-time, all full-time working Americans. As seniors who have retired, they should be able to stay in their homes. Yeah, I mean, without getting priced out. If you own your home, you don't get priced out of it. I don't know what that means. So, yeah, this is just pandering to, to the senior vote. Okay, let's move on. This is the, the last... The last of Ocasio-Cortez's 15 points. I can't believe I went through her whole platform. Here we go. Curb Wall Street gambling, colon, restore Glass-Steagall. 
So she says, hey, there's systemic risk in our banking system. It leads to the concentration of wealth and power into fewer and fewer hands. Blah, blah, blah. We should restore Glass-Steagall. And, I mean, basically, this is a reaction to the 2008 financial crisis. She says, we should make sure that no bank is allowed to become too big to fail. Oversized banks need to be broken up. I want to give her a point for this, but I can't because her, her solution is horrible. But she hits on a real problem. And I think, you know, the conservative slash libertarian community that ignores this does so at their own peril. Because she's tapping into it. There's a real problem here, and she is tapping into it. And, uh, and let's, so let's talk about that for a minute. A lot of people will understand the concept of uh, the value of a free market and the value of having a free market price pricing system, right? So I, I think I've talked about this before, but the, the price of a product is this beautiful instantaneous calculation of all of the demand and supply and, and, uh, and complexity of the market all distilled down to one number, right? If, if, uh, if an iPhone is a certain amount, uh, then then you know uh, the value of uh, the components that go into it. You know how you know you know how much value it's providing other people. It's you know exactly how to price something if it's if it's on the open market. If someone wants to pay seven hundred dollars for it, but not eight hundred, that, that gives you a lot of information about how much how much of the iPhones you should be making and how much. Uh, you shouldn't be, you know, what you should be doing. Uh, a better example might be the price of wheat. It will tell you, should I plant more wheat or less wheat? Or, you know, it, 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 it's a signal. And price, the pricing mechanism is a beautiful signal that can't be replicated through any kind of central planning. It is a, it's an impossible, basically, calculation. Not basically. It is a, a calculation that is impossible outside of the free market. And it's impossible because... It's a reflection of the, the inner desires of everyone all summed up to, to, a particular, um, to a particular price, right? How much I'm willing to pay for an iPhone depends on how much I feel like the iPhone is valuable to me. How much I'm willing to pay for wheat or a box of Wheaties is, is based on how much I feel the box of Wheaties is worth to me. And, all of, and, and I can whimsically decide some, maybe Wheaties suddenly becomes very popular and so, it's really important to me to have the Wheaties. Yeah, bad example, but uh, and so the price shifts. So it's it's this measurement that no central planner can possibly match, and and that's really important. And a, a lot of people understand the pricing mechanism for for goods and services. Um, you know, in 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 the free market, we understand it for for. Uber, and we understand it for iPhones, and we understand it for wine, and we understand it for almost everything. But this entire system there's, is, is built on something that is inherently um, corrupt, which is the central banking system. Now, and the, and the Federal Reserve I'm not going to go into a long Ron Paul speech about 
uh, the Federal Reserve right now. But it's important if you haven't looked at this issue to really understand what the central banking uh, system is and and what the Federal Reserve is. And this is really uh, cronyism slash oligarchy slash uh, maybe crony socialism. It's not capitalism. Capitalism is a free market. It's not capitalism. The most important price of all is not the price of wheat or the price of iPhones or the price of wine or the price of Wheaties. The most important price is the price of money. It's how much is money worth today? And you can tell the price of money because the price of money um, is reflected in a free market, is reflected in the interest rate. And so it's how much does it cost to borrow the money today? And if it's very expensive tomorrow to borrow the money today, um, then, then money is kind of expensive in that sense. And if it's very cheap to borrow money today, then money's cheap. And it tells you, uh, that interest rate tells you what's happening in the economy. Is now a good time to build out your factory? Is now a good time to make investments and hire some more employees or, or make capital investments in your business? Or is now a bad time to do it? That's reflected in, in free market interest rates. But, and of course money, everything's built on money. So, so the, the value of money and the price of money is very important. But we live in a society where iPhones are basically free market priced. Wheaties are free market priced, but money isn't. We live in a system where interest rates are set by central authorities. There is a crony banking system where Banks like Citibank and Chase get access to to money immediately after printing. Shouldn't be printing money anyway, but that's not the point. So they get it at the beginning of the cycle, before the inflation has hit. They get special access that no one else gets. Go try and start a bank. You can't start a bank without A, a hell of a lot of money, and B, a lot of government approval. And C, even if you do that, You'll, you won't get into the, the, the old boys club of old money banks that have access to, uh, to the Federal Reserve and to the Treasury right? and, can, and can get that money right away. You won't. You got to be Chase. You got to be Bank of America. You got to be Wells Fargo. You got to be one of those big players to get in. I'm not even sure exactly how you get in or if it's possible, uh, but you got to be big. You can't be small. And this is just a scam on all of us. It's a scam that is, is a legitimate scam for uh, Ocasio-Cortez to point out. It's not the free market at all. And the 2008 crash in which we bailed banks out, I mean, we, I think we gave them, uh, at the end, I think we gave them trillions of dollars. That's proof that it's not free market capitalism. In free market capitalism, those banks would have failed. And the investors in those banks would have lost their money. And if those banks were insured, the insurance companies may have gone bankrupt. I'm not sure. But they would have been weeded out. And the people in charge of those banks would not have jobs. And they certainly wouldn't have uh, you know, golden parachutes they would be unemployed and the banks would have failed and smaller people would have come up and purchased those assets, the, the valuable assets from the banks. And the whole market would have learned a lesson. Don't do that thing they just did. Don't be risky. 
But, you know, she talks about Wall Street gambling, and she's right. The reason Wall Street gambles isn't because they're not regulated enough. They're regulated up the wazoo. The reason they gamble is because they're in bed with the government and they have no downside. If I take you to the blackjack table in Vegas and tell you, do whatever you want, or let's, uh, let's make it uh, craps, right? Or the roulette wheel. Do whatever you want. Keep your winnings. If you lose big, I'll bail you out. Well, you're going to gamble all night. And that's the situation these banks are in. We, you, me, the taxpayer, we bailed them out from poor decisions that the free market would not bail them out of. The free market would let them die as they should have. It would punish them. And you might say, well, we couldn't have done that. They were too big. It would have caused all these ripple effects. Maybe, but the reason that they were in the position in the first place is because they knew they were getting bailed out. They knew they could get bailed out. They knew they were too big to fail. Yeah, some, some, some failed, and so they let some fail. But in general, they're all tight with the government. It's all cronyism there. They know what's going on. They don't have to worry about, they don't have to worry about this. And, and they've been making money hand over fist, basically through their connections to the government and access to capital that you and I don't have access to. So this idea that Glass-Steagall is going to, you know, we should restore Glass-Steagall to make sure our banks can't gamble with our money. Look, if you believe that restoring any legislation makes sure that something doesn't happen, you are naive. That's not, legislation can't do that. And look, these bankers are smart. They'll get around whatever that, you, you know, they'll find some other way. Um, the problem isn't that they're gambling. The problem is they're gambling with your money, not theirs. I don't care if they gamble. They can gamble all day. As long as they do it with their own money and they have to suffer the consequences. And so, really, if you care about, if you care about Wall Street gambling, uh, and if you care about the system uh, and, the, and the cronyism inherent in the system, you really need to, to be more on the side of people like Ron Paul and advocate for at least auditing the Federal Reserve, ideally dismantling the central banking and Federal Reserve system. I know that's a very old system and difficult to dismantle. But let's at least start moving in the direction where we don't bail banks out. They don't get special access to stuff. And they've got to fail or succeed on their own. And, you know, and one thing that gives banks a lot of power, again, getting back to the government, is the, the tax law, where if you want to uh, maximize your, your returns from capital investments, you do it on, in, in the stock market in 401ks. They have, you know, if you, if you have special retirement, right, if you have retirement accounts or 401ks, you are not taxed until, until later. Um, but you get the compound interest without tax for a long time. And so because there's different tax for those, uh, for those vehicles and, and, those ve and, and what you can invest in in those vehicles is very limited. You typically can't you know, invest in your brother's business or something like that. You're kind of forced, eh, I'll say forced in quotes, but you're compelled to put your money in the stock market. So you're kind of propping up the stock market, you're propping up Wall Street, and you're doing all this because you're just trying to not get taxed, right? Because the taxing laws are different than if you did it outside of your 401k versus inside of your 401k. 
So the government has meddled with all of this, and they've created these this, these cronies on Wall Street, and they've created this problem. And 2008 wasn't a failure of the free market. It was a kind of inevitable result of this cronyism um, that's been happening on Wall Street. And I mentioned this book in the last episode, but I'll pull it out again here. Again, you want to learn about this. This book is called The Financial Crisis and the Free Market Cure. It's by John Allison. He's a, a great guy. Uh, I've uh, done some mentoring and stuff with him at, at, uh, and, and been involved a little bit. I don't know him well, but he's a, he's a super nice guy. It's a great book. He was the CEO of, of BB&T Corporation, which was um, a pretty large bank in mostly in the South. And I guess they still are a pretty pretty large bank. They were one of the only banks, uh, as I said before, who didn't need TARP money. He was actually uh, strong-armed into taking TARP money, but uh, a great guy and a great insightful look at what the real issue was that caused the financial crisis. All right. So, so again, this is an issue where she kind of touches on something, but um, her... Her assumptions underlying it are wrong, right? She's assuming that the problem is there's not enough busybodies on Wall Street uh, checking boxes and looking over the shoulders of douchebags. Uh, that is not the problem. The problem is that uh, douchebags have a corniest system set up with Central Bank and the Feds, and they get bailed out from uh, other douchebags that we elect. So that's the problem. And bringing a free market here and freeing up the market in money would and, and, and breaking out those cronyist ties and breaking up that oligarchy and that which is this kind of relationship between uh, the government and and large corporations and banks well that will that will solve your problem uh, Alexandria so whew, that was a long one we got through all of her 15 and it did take two full episodes so thank you for watching this kind of i don't know whether to call this a tea time episode or a happy hour whatever it is it's the second part of today's tea time episode of unsafe space you can follow unsafe space on twitter at unsafe show is is our handle on twitter you can go to patreon.com slash unsafe space to support the show. You can go to unsafe space dot, or sorry, unsafe show.com. Uh, also to support the show, you can find a podcast of these episodes on Thursday. Every Thursday, I do a show called deprogrammed with Carrie Smith, former social justice warrior. Uh, and we talk about the social justice culture this Thursday. We're actually interviewing and having a discussion with uh, Gracie West. I believe her name is who uh, was uh, intimately involved in the social justice culture and has been really looking, uh, now that she's left it, she's, a, she's an apostate, and she's really been looking at the social justice movement as a cult. And so she's going to talk to us about the cultish aspects of social justice. So join us on uh, this Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific time live on YouTube for that. Thanks again, everyone and have a great rest of your day.